we are uh, in the second week of our series called Turn Ye Northward Two, and we're looking at, frankly, the five kind of fundamental tenets or lenses, ideological lenses that we look through here as a community, five distinctives of a progressive Christian community. I've had a lot of friends from around the country that have kind of tapped into our last week here as a church and some of the explaining that we've been doing. Uh, good friends, friends with, that are leaders in the progressive Christian church, and they're really thrilled with what's happening here, and I was very gratified because when they looked at these list of five things over and over again, uh, they're saying these are just spot on, and they have not come through the minds of one or two pastors here. Uh, they've come from the reflection of a community, and it was very easy to articulate these five because we no longer looked as elders and pastors here and said, what do we want people to believe uh, we've been able to congeal out of this community. This is what we believe. This is the way you operate. This is the way you think. This is where spirit has led us. Those five fundamental tenets, and they certainly aren't exhaustive, but I think they incorporate a lot of others, and they're, they're overarching. But those five tenets are, the first, we deeply believe in an inherent union as opposed to inherent separation. Innate union. We believe that people are born children of God and that the journey of salvation that many religions take people on, including Christianity, is a journey not to becoming something you aren't, but a journey to, a journey to understanding who you've always been. And so we believe in inherent union, that people are born in union with God and not inherent separation. Uh, the second is we believe in radical inclusivity. We'll talk more about that, I think, next week when we take the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist or communion, is called the Lord's Table. It is amazing to me that this thing we do, Steve, called the Lord's Table, that we often have fenced, literally. Many Christian denominations talk about fencing the Lord's Table to protect it from being tainted by sinners. It's amazing. That's the Lord's Table. If there is anything that Jesus got in trouble with the religious folk over, it was his table. And you remember why he got in trouble over his table? Because anybody could sit there and anybody could eat there. How in the world have we not seen the radical inclusivity of Jesus' table as the model for how we're supposed to do spiritual community? An another side difference there that I would uh, just take an aside and tell you um, traditional and progressive Christian communities both value Paul and Jesus. You'll hear a lot of people in progressive Christian communities uh, express ire and the fact that they're disconcerted with Paul. That's, that's not the way I feel. And, and I think those that really delve into this, I understand why people have problems with Paul sometime, but I'll, I'll do a message sometime called In Defense of Paul. And I, I think it, it'll be good. But <clears throat> here's the difference between traditional and progressive Christian communities. Traditional Christianity has the tendency to interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul. Whereas progressive Christian communities interpret Paul through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is always the trumping lens. We don't feel like Paul was the chief scholar who cleared up the things that Jesus hadn't settled yet. And so if we're going to interpret the table of the Lord, 
we don't go to 1 Corinthians 11, a Pauline text, and make it the Magna Carta. We go back to the table of the Lord, the life of Jesus. And whatever Paul says, we see it through that lens. So radical inclusivity is something we deeply believe here. Uh, the third tenet that we've talked about and we're going to specifically speak to today is progressive revelation continues. I'll come back to that one. Uh, the fourth is we believe that mind, the mind is friend. We believe that science and reason are not antithetical to faith. When science through exploration comes to an understanding of the universe or the multiverse or the way the brain functions, that doesn't threaten our faith. I, I just, whenever science comes up with something new that maybe has not been in our faith system or our faith thought until now, I just say, oh, so that's the way God did it. It doesn't bother me. Science and reason are perfectly reconcilable to faith. God, you don't have to check your mind in at the door to have faith. That was one of the things that Samuel Clements, uh, a.k.a. Mark Twain, was so bothered by with Christianity. He just didn't understand why faith had to be that thing that makes no sense to you, but you're supposed to believe because the authority figures tell you to. Mind is friend. Isaiah 1 says, come now, let us reason together. Jesus looked at the large crowd and he said, sit down and count the cost. Think this through. So mind is friend. It's a big value here. And then the fifth one, which uh, Mel will be approaching here in a couple of weeks, she'll be speaking on, is eternal life now. We certainly believe, I certainly believe, that life persists beyond biological cessation. I believe in what we call the afterlife, even though I don't think afterlife is a good term for it. I don't believe I will cease to be when I breathe my last breath in this frame. I also don't believe that the majority of our thought and thinking about our faith needs to be bound up in what happens to us after we die. I, I think the now is an incredibly important place. It's the only place that we really live and breathe. And whatever the after death experience is, I, I think the most that I can do for that is do this well right now. Eternal life is right now. And, and we sometimes within traditional ranks get so lost in the afterlife, we miss the gift and the beauty of this life and the witness of God here. So eternal life is now. Those are the five tenets. Today we're looking at that third tenet that I mentioned, progressive revelation continues. Uh, the interesting thing about progressive revelation, progressive revelation is a concept that has traditionally been espoused in Christianity from our earliest days. And simply stated, progressive revelation within a Christian, Judeo-Christian context means that as we move from Genesis to Revelation, there is an unfolding, growing, and accumulating, accumulating revelation of God. Uh, from a Christian perspective, especially looking back on the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is offensive to our Jewish brothers and sisters, by the way, but let me just say, from a Christian perspective, traditionally, there has been the assumption that from Adam, not just through Jesus, the second Adam, but from Adam through the apostles, there was this accumulating, growing revelation of God. And what we knew in Genesis, we knew more in Deuteronomy. And what we knew in Deuteronomy, we knew more in the Kings. And what we knew in the Kings, we knew more in Isaiah. And ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ, there was the accumulation and the fullness of everything the prophets had been pointing to but couldn't quite capture. And then not only... 
do we come to this apex, this summit in Jesus? But then through the life of the apostles, there was the articulation of Jesus' life and message full. And so from Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Isaiah, through Jesus, and ultimately to Paul and his cohorts, there is this growing, mounting understanding of God as God reveals God's self beyond what God has revealed God's self before. All of this supposedly because human consciousness was not ready before. That's why Paul, Paul believed in progressive revelation and Paul was trying to explain to his Jewish brothers and sisters why he believed the fullness was now being understood. He said, because God did this at the right time. Bill King James, remember, says, in due season Christ was revealed. That in due season is that sense of when it was the right time, God finally was able to speak these things. Now, what do we believe about progressive revelation? Well, I added a word to progressive revelation, and that is that progressive revelation continues. Because traditionally, progressive revelation has been espoused by the church with the understanding that progressive revelation ceased with the apostles. Everything that God wanted to get said, as clearly as God wanted to get it said, was said by the apostles 2,000 years ago. Now, there is some allowance that the early Christian church then spent 600 years creating creeds that they believe captured the apostles' doctrine, whom they believe captured Jesus' doctrine, whom they believe captured the prophets' doctrine, whom they believe captured fully the Abrahamic doctrine. So really it wasn't with the end of the apostles, as they say, it was with the fullness of the apostolic fathers wrestling through what they believe was the apostles' message, and we literally spent almost half a millennia fighting over what the apostles said. So progressive revelation ceased with the apostles or with the early church fathers' understanding of what the apostles said. The belief that progressive revelation continues, or the idea of continuing revelation, is simply pushed back to the extent that we believe that the fullness of truth, the fullness of understanding about who we are, where we are, where we're going, who is the holy other on the other side of this veil, where we came from, that these existential matters, the idea of continuing revelation is simply that those things are still unfolding. I even made a, a post this week in Facebook that a lot of people responded to. Um, I'll just read it. <clears throat> in every discipline of study, from biology to astronomy to medicine, we are accumulating information and wisdom. Why would theology or human spirituality be the disciplines that are allowed to fix all of their ideas centuries ago with no allowance for continued exploration? That makes no sense to me. In every discipline of study, in every field of human interest, there is the idea of growth and expansion and fuller understanding. And yet in matters of human spirituality and religious idea or theology, it's not just Christianity, almost every major world religion has posited the idea of a ceased revelation. And interestingly, the ceased revelation 
the ceased revelation always centers around their central experience and their central religious figure. And that ceased revelation, once codified, then gives them a system of power and organization by which they organize people. And some would even say control people. Now we know as Christians that other religions do that, but we do not. And I say that tongue-in-cheek and you understand. Why would we believe in continuing revelation? Well, for me, it is reasonable. For me, it is intuitive. For me, it is scientific. But beyond that, I even believe, and this is why I would, one of the reasons I would still refer to myself as a human doing spirituality in Christian form I am a Christian is because I believe continuing revelation, not the ceasing of progressive revelation, I believe continuing revelation is the tradition of the Christian church. I believe it is the tradition of the Christian church which was espoused by Jesus and we have wrestled for 2,000 years with the scariness of it and we have yet to fully embrace exactly what Jesus taught as continuing revelation. And I think even Paul would have agreed with. And I'll share that in my defense of Paul someday. So let, let me just give you a few archetypical scriptures that I think fall from the mouth of Jesus. That really espouse this idea that progressive revelation has not ceased with the apostles. It was not intended to cease with the apostles, but it is an unfolding thing that is still happening in the life of spiritual communities today. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in this Magna Carta of his message, Jesus said one day, some even believe that it might have been in Samaria, a, a place that uh, religious folk believed was filled with spiritual religious dogs, people who were half-breeds and heretics. But there's good scholarship that says that that may be exactly the mountain that Jesus chose to teach his Sermon on the Mount, which is amazing to me. That he would have gone into Samaria, a place that the normal person, his normal counterpart, would have not even soiled their shoes with the dust of that place. Um, Jesus went headlong into Samaria, got up on a mountain and looked at a group of people and said, blessed are you scandalizing the religious leaders, some religious leaders, no doubt, who were there trying to convert these poor, uh, her heretical, disbelieving people. And Jesus goes into the middle of this place that needed evangelized, and instead of saying, convert, Jesus said, blessed are you. And he didn't talk about right doctrine. He didn't talk about theological acuity. He, he looked at them, and he talked about attitudes of heart, virtues, and dispositions of soul. He didn't say, blessed are you if you're certain, blessed are you if you understand the prophecies of Isaiah and if you keep kosher law. He said, blessed are you if you're hungry. Blessed are you if you're thirsty. Blessed are you if you're humble. Blessed are you if you're meek. Blessed are you if you are peacemakers. Blessed are you if you are sincere. Blessed are you if you're searching and seeking. It's a scandalous message because, again, it was not about doctrine. It was not about struggle and midrash and understanding of Scripture. It was all about the heart. 
It's interesting, if it were in Samaria, Jesus did something that, that really underscored his whole nonverbal message by giving that message in Samaria because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 record that message. And when he comes down off the mountain, Matthew 8 begins by saying the first thing that he did when he got off the mountain was he saw a leper. And again, a leper would be an unclean person, a person that really would have no access to the temple and thus limited access to God an untouchable, a religiously untouchable person. And so Jesus leaves the blessed are you, the Sermon on the Mount. He walks down the mountain, and as the religious leaders no doubt are ready to attack, and they were in the ensuing chapters, they were ready with questions. Jesus sees the leper, and he walks right up to him, and he touches him. He not only engages him, he touches him. And this was just the end for the religious leaders. That Jesus would dare. But that touch of this human being was really the embodiment of everything that he had just verbally said. It was a scandalizing message. And in the heart of that scandalizing message, in the heart of that scandalizing moment in Jesus' ministry, five times Jesus looked at this group of people and he said, you have heard that it was said. And he picked out some central moral issues, life issues that are important to all of us. Five specific issues from marriage to murder and on. And Jesus looked at them and said, you have heard that it was said. And the rubric continued in all five occasions, but I say unto you, you have heard you have heard. So Jesus immediately was speaking to the frailty of the interpretation process, the interpreting of religious, the passing on of religious traditions and ideas. And Jesus immediately spoke to the frailty by saying, you heard, which was a nice way of saying, it may not have been what they said, but you at least heard it said. You're following now. We all, you have people in your life that you look at sometime and say, well, I know that's what you heard, but I don't think that's what I said. Anybody? Jesus said, you heard that it was said. Now, who was doing the saying? The saying was the rabbinic tradition. And there's much about my Christian faith now that aligns with good Judaism because the rabbinic tradition of Midrash was built around the idea that there was a written Torah and there was an oral Torah and the oral Torah was as important as the written Torah because the oral Torah was a group of people continually wrestling with the already written text trying to mine it for understanding that maybe heretofore we had not had. That's something that's always been at the heart, even of traditional conservative Judaism, is that there is a continuing revelation of God. And the continuing revelation of God may very well unfold through the Scripture. Scripture somehow is this flower, it's this truth, it's this bud of reality that unfolds over time. And that's why my good friend A.J. Levine, great Jesus scholar who is a Jewish person who teaches at Vanderbilt and probably one of the ten best Jesus scholars in the world today. She'll be speaking for us in December as we head into Advent season. 
Um, I, I asked AJ why Jewish people do so well in wrestling matches over orthodoxy and doctrine. And she said, well, it's easy because we don't believe eternal destinies, damnation, or salvation depend upon getting doctrine right. Once you're in covenant, I mean, it's kind of a, they're kind of like Baptists. Once saved, always saved. Once you get in there, you can't really get out. It's kind of like the Hotel California, this thing called heaven. <laughs> a relationship with God. So there, maybe there's a lot right about that. But um, she said, we have the ability to wrestle and we can use imagination and creativity and intuition and reason and art and we can go all over the board and we can be absolutely off the rails. But nobody's hanging over the burning fires of hell going to lose their salvation for wrestling with these important ideas. As a matter of fact, no matter how much we disagree, we laud one another for showing up at the table and doing this struggle. It's beautiful there. And out of the struggle and out of the tension, God continues to speak. So I think that's a lovely way of looking at the text. And it's been a part of the Jewish faith for years. And it was what we were supposed to build our faith on. But I think we ended up doing something with the apostles that most of the apostles never ended, uh, intended for us to do. I, I think if, if Paul knew, here's a bit of defense of Paul. If Paul knew what we had done with Paul, I don't think he would be narcissistic and grateful. I think he would slap us across the mouth and say, how dare you? How dare you have treated my text and my humble writings with the magnitude and the level of certainty you have, you've treated them with more certainty than I did. Paul didn't know he was writing what this church would later call scripture. He had no idea. If you would have told Paul that his writings to the Corinthian church or the Romans or the Galatians or the church at Philippi, if you would have told Paul in the moment that he was writing those texts that they were tantamount to Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the psalmist David, Paul would have been scandalized. Paul didn't speak with a level of Torah certainty in most places. We impose that upon Paul. I think about 1 Corinthians 7, beautiful text that shows Paul within a reasonable rabbinic tradition wrestling with really difficult life issues, wrestling with what previous text and previous religious authorities said about these very real issues. As a matter of fact, the entire book of 1 Corinthians Paul is saying, now concerning the matters of which you wrote to me, a letter had come to Paul with seven or eight or nine really important everyday issues, and Paul pastorally was doing his best to speak into these issues. 1 Corinthians 7, a question came up about marriage. Marriage, divorce, celibacy. There's even slavery some in there. Um, Young virgins, what to do as a young virgin, what to do as a divorced person, what to do as a person who's married to an unbeliever in a difficult, maybe even abusive situation. There's a lot of questions. And Paul right out of the shoot in 1 Corinthians 7, this is rabbinic tradition. This is good theology. This is the idea of continuing revelation. He immediately genuflects with some level of appreciation to his prior authority, which would immediately be Jesus. And he said, now concerning the matter of which you wrote to me, can a woman who's married to a man who's not a believer, and that's a new issue, because in the Jewish faith always they had married within covenant community, but now in this new sect of Judaism, Christianity, there's this thing of conversion that's open to Gentiles, and so... In the land of Corinth now, there's this Christian believer 
who converts into the faith and they have a spouse who is not commensurate to that faith. They do not believe that faith and so there's this dissonance in the home and no doubt in uh, Mediterranean culture, a very patriarchal, even misogynistic culture where women experienced a lot of repression, if you got an unequally yoked home where a pagan was now married to this person who was a part of this Christian cult that was immediately drawing a lot of ire from the Roman government, this was not going to be a good situation. And it doesn't take a lot of interpolation to see that it could have even led to a pretty abusive situation for a woman. Enough so, Drew, that the letter came and said, what's this woman do? She's married to this unbeliever. It's a totally new scenario. Jesus, in good midrash rabbinic form, or Paul, rather, in good midrash rabbinic form, said, now concerning this thing of which you wrote to me, I have no commandment from the Lord. And while Paul did not have access to the four gospels that we have now at that time because the four gospels weren't written, Four Gospels may be put at the front of our New Testament, but they were not written till a good while after Paul wrote his letters. But he did have access to the same stories and the canon of information that were in those Gospels because most of our Gospels were written from previous compilations and oral tradition and, and probably even some written, uh, some written letters at that time. And, and Paul, with full access to the stories and the ministry of Jesus, Knowing good and well that Jesus had spoken to the idea of divorce and the idea of marriage on a couple of occasions, Paul said, concerning what you just asked me about, I have no commandment from the Lord. Two ways to interpret that, because you can hear that two ways. Either Paul is saying Jesus never said anything about this, and there's nothing in the text about this, or he's saying with direct access to Jesus, because he did experienced Jesus pretty direct in his ministry, it seems. In Galatians, he said, every bit of the doctrine he taught, he literally said, I didn't get it from the apostles, I got it as a direct download from Jesus. And he did meet him on the road to Damascus. So Paul seemed to have a pretty direct channel. So some believe that when Paul said, I have no commandment from the Lord, that literally in that moment, he was saying, how do you feel about this, Jesus? And Jesus was saying, figure it out. Work it through yourself. There is precedent for that, by the way, because in Acts 15, earlier, Paul had been in a conference with James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, the spokesman at Pentecost, wrestling through the issue of what to do with Gentile people and their inclusion, and should we put Jewish ordinances and kosher law on these new Christian people who are not Jewish. They so wrestled through that that they withstood one another to the face. And in that meeting, Paul even called Peter a hypocrite. James referred to Peter as Simon, the old name, which was certainly pejorative. It was a raw and inflamed meeting. And when they walked away from that meeting, there was no absolute certainty, but they had to reach what they called a compromise that, quote, seemed good to the Holy Spirit. What do you mean, seemed good? Where's the certainty and the control that we want? Well, sometimes it seems that the Spirit of God stays out of our situations, out of these moments that we have to work through and reach compromises on because maybe God believes things like civility and forbearance and humility and long-suffering and tolerance. Those might be higher virtues than certainty and accuracy and getting it right. 
And Paul said, you just wrote to me about something really important. And I have no commandment from the Lord on this. So what are you going to do when you're in a pastoral situation and you exhaust the entire body of information prior to you and you say, I got nothing. Specifically, I got nothing. I got no commandment from Jesus. What do you do? What do you mean you have no commandment on this? Here's a woman hurting, married to a pagan man. It might even be somewhat abusive. We don't know. I mean, 1 Peter 3 is absolutely a Petrine retake on 1 Corinthians 7, probably 50 years later. And 1 Peter 3 quotes that entire passage. And Peter says, wives, be submissive to your husbands, even if they are disobedient to the word, for in so doing you may win them when they see your chaste and respectful behavior. And in the beginning of that text, he said, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your husband. In the same way as what? Right before that, he said, slaves be submissive to your masters. You see why the church needs to be doing continuing revelation? A church that believes in progressive revelation that ends at the first century maintains the institution of slavery for 19 centuries on the ground of Scripture. Thank God somebody did some continuing revelation on the 20th, in the 19th century on slavery and said we've been wrong on this. God hasn't changed God's mind. We finally have the ears to hear what God has always been saying. The issue of continuing revelation is not a God who's holding out on us, but a God who can't communicate with us because human consciousness grows over time. And in the growing, we grow ears and have a capacity to hear things that we couldn't hear before. The elemental chart existed before the 16th century. Relativity existed before the early 20th century. Newtonian physics were true physics before Newton was born. But as human consciousness grows, we have the capacity to hear and see things that we never had before. That's continuing revelation. Slaves, Peter said, be submissive to your masters even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. We're talking about scenarios that very well were abusive. But hang in there, sister, because you might win him. Because Christ was crucified, and it was the crucifixion of Christ that led to the redemption of those who crucified him. So take the blows. They may be redemptive. Really? Has modern psychology and an understanding of codependence given us some more clarity on these matters? Has the Spirit of God the capacity to talk to us about things that maybe we couldn't hear before that we can do better on? Paul said, as serious as this is, I have no commandment from the Lord. But listen to what he said, and this is the heart of a community that believes in continuing revelation. Paul said, I know this issue is huge, but when I go through Torah and when I go through Jesus, I got nothing here. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say something about divorce? In Matthew 18, the Pharisees came and said, can a man suffer his wife a writing of divorce for any reason? It was a big issue at that time. In the rabbinic tradition, they were wrestling over a word in Deuteronomy. 
a word that had been lost in the development of the Hebrew language, a word that some translated uncleanness, a word that some translated immorality, but a word that had been lost in five to six centuries of Hebrew language development. At the time of Jesus, they were wrestling. Did Moses allow a man, only a man, women had none of this, but did Moses allow a man to divorce his wife for any cause or just if he found out she had been sexually immoral? The Pharisees were split over it. The camp of Hillel said it was for any reason. The camp of Shammai said it was only for sexual immorality. And they had been doing midrash around that for centuries with human lives hanging in the balance. And the Pharisees came with their argument, their rabbinic midrashic argument, and said, what is it, Jesus? Is it any cause? And Jesus leapfrogged Moses and the entire argument. And he said in the beginning, God created man and the woman. And the Pharisees looked at him and said, well, you may not want to talk about it. You may be politically obtuse, but Moses talked about it. Now, what did he mean? And Jesus said, all right, you want to know what Moses meant? The word meant sexual immorality. And when he said it's sexual immorality that Moses was talking about that a man could put a woman away for it. A woman couldn't put a man away for it, but a man could put away a woman for it. If he found out, I don't know why they couldn't see that in context. I would have been on Shammai's side. Because even if you lose that word in Deuteronomy 24, is it uncleanness or is it any cause? I mean, you have other context within the Torah that if a young woman was married to a man and he found out she wasn't a virgin on the night of the marriage, it didn't matter if he had been a stud all of his life. But if she wasn't a virgin, you could take her and her parents to the city gate and burn them. It's pretty clear. Jesus said that's exactly what Moses was saying. Jesus did not lay out his magnum opus on marriage and divorce. He answered a pressing legalistic question from the law of Moses. That's all he did. His disciples evidently were in the school of Hillel because when he said that's the only reason that you can get rid of a woman, his disciples looked at him and said, my Lord, if that's the only reason, we might as well not even get married. What a beautiful understanding they had of marriage, right? <laughs> That's the midrashic way that you look at a text. You look at it in context. You understand it. You wrestle with it. Paul knew that story. And a woman with a black eye said, do I have to stay with this man? And Jesus said, or Paul said, I don't have anything from Jesus on this. Because he was answering a question about the law and a man's right to treat a woman like cattle. And that context does not carry over into this. Jesus and Isaiah and Paul or Moses did not lay anything out about this mixed union. Paul said, I have no commandment from the Lord. But I can't not talk about this because she's standing in front of me needing an answer. And there's nothing except this. I have no commandment from the Lord, but I speak as one who has been counted worthy by the mercy of God to give an opinion. That's all any parent tries to do when your kid is in harm's way. That's all any pastor or elder tries to do when broken lives are standing before us. 
And we don't want to turn them into a moral issue or a doctrinal dilemma. We want to deal with their pain. We have to speak by permission as parents, as children of God, as pastors, as elders, who by the mercy of God, the inclusiveness of God, have been given permission to give an opinion. And Paul said, this is what I think you ought to do. I think as long as he wants to stay with you, stay with him because you might win him to the Lord, which is what Peter reprised later. And Paul did not delve into what I saw all of my life growing up in the Pentecostal church, these, safe, I mean, these sacred, precious women who over and over again in our church, our churches were full of women who over and over again stood and gave their painful prayer request of, would you remember Earl? This lost husband of mine. And every now and then these women would come with broken ribs and plugs of hair pulled out and black eyes. And we didn't know what to do because abuse was nowhere mentioned in scripture as a reason. It was just sexual immorality. It was because that's the way we read Matthew 18. We didn't understand how to read Matthew 18. We didn't understand what Paul was telling us when Paul said, I've got nothing from Jesus on this. This is new and off the map. If within 20 years of the death of Jesus, Paul was saying, I'm dealing with normal life issues that Jesus did not even foresee and speak about, how many more do we have 2,000 years later? If in 20 years, Paul's saying, Jesus didn't deal with this directly I've got to speak by permission and give an opinion here. He gave an opinion on that and made no allowance for abuse. Nor did the Petrine text 50 years later, even comparing it to the slave situation of enduring abuse. Why would we be able to do continuing revelation on slavery, but we can't do continuing revelation on divorce and marriage? Why do you get to do it on 1 Peter 2 and not 1 Peter 3? To every evangelical traditional friend of mine, I want to say, you do continuing revelation. You just do it, evangelical church, my people. You do it inconsistently and conveniently. We've been doing it forever on the text. We're just called to do it consistently. Paul went on to say, I'm giving an opinion here. Stay with him. You may win him when he observes your chaste and respectful behavior. Why did Peter, reprising that, at the end of his text, he even said, our brother Paul was hard to understand. The entire letters of 1 and 2 Peter was a later community trying to understand Pauline text. They were explicating these texts. Why did he talk about slavery as well as marriage? Because Paul, right after he said, and you wives, stay with him. You may win him. He then said in 1 Corinthians 7, as an opinion, if you were born in slavery, seek not to be free. Paul was not an abolitionist. There was no human consciousness in that moment that, aboli that the abolition of slavery was even possible. It was so in them, at a genetic cellular level, there was no consciousness in humanity to understand that slavery needed abolished. Stretching as far as he could, Paul taught slave owners to be kind to their slaves and slaves to be respectful to their slave owners. And he believed that some kind of Christian redemptive energy perhaps could begin to undo an institution. 
transform an institution, maybe even abolish an institution which would have been beyond Paul's capacity to even understand. That's why he sent Onesimus back to Philemon. And that's why after telling women to abide with those husbands because you might win them, he said, and if you were born a slave, don't seek to be free. Never. When Harriet, Tub when Harriet Tubman did her work, she said the hardest work was not on the end of the white man. The hardest work was the begging that I had to do with some of my cousins, my brothers and sisters come out. Because they had been taught in their Christianity, many of them, if you are a slave, seek not to be free. But, Paul said, abide in the state where God has called you. Brothers and sisters, if we cannot, 2,000 years later, continue to do midrash and believe in an unfolding, continuing revelation of God on that text, then that text means nothing to me. And I am not ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that text means nothing to me. Because it still does. But the only way it can mean something to me, Roy Carter, is if we have the ability to handle the text the way Paul handled the text. And Paul believed in continuing revelation, and he even believed that by the mercy of God, he was given permission in the first century to speak to that. Paul did not give me a final fixed answer on marriage, divorce, abuse, or slavery. What Paul did was he brought me into a rabbinic tradition, gave me a hermeneutic and an interpretive lens of a continuing revelation, and said, Stan Mitchell, do not take a fixed position. Be able to stand in the face of human pain and say, concerning this of which we're dealing with today, Larry, I have nothing from Paul, I have nothing from Jesus except a spirit of humility and calling that we by permission of God through God's mercy must bring the spirit to bear upon this situation and give an opinion. He continued in 1 Corinthians 7 past calling slaves to abide in that place. He continued on and said, if you are a virgin and you are not yet married, do not get married. If you are divorced, do not marry again. If you are unmarried on any level, do not get married. Because of the impending crisis and the nearness of Jesus' coming. Jesus' return was so imminent in the, Paul of, in the mind of Paul that Paul believed it created a crisis of evangelism that meant we should not even get married. He was wrong. Jesus did not return in his lifetime as he suspected. But he was right. Because you know what Paul was doing with the text and with the Spirit of God? The same thing we're doing. He was giving his best opinion. You know how I know that? Not just because he set the entire thing up by saying, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give an opinion here by one who's been counted worthy by the mercy of God. He concluded the chapter on marriage, divorce, slavery, unmarried people, widows. He concluded the chapter and the last thing he said, which the evangelical traditional church has never been willing to hear, he concluded the chapter by saying, and I think I have the mind of the Spirit on these things. Now, if we would just be as humble with Paul's writings as Paul was, 
we would come back to a tradition of wrestling in the face of modern dilemmas with ancient wisdom and bringing those principles to bear in beautiful and relevant ways. And we wouldn't have to be lost between these extreme positions of making, the, making a God out of the Bible or dismissing it as tantamount to Mein Kampf and the writings of Hitler. It deserves neither of those extremities. It is the spiritual travel diary of our ancestors, and it is not a constitutional end. It is an invitational beginning to bring all of our realities, modern-day circumstances, before the Spirit of God, learning a hermeneutic of continuing revelation, even from our text, and setting together as a family. And I don't even know how we'll predict what the next crisis will be. But to be able to sit down and over the last, to be on the verge to see a woman scarcely a hundred years, 95 years removed from when a female could not even vote in our country. And as I recall church history, our, ch our church was actually behind even our government on this issue. To look back at slavery and segregation and Jim Crow and separate but not equal, to know that as a young Christian I grew up in a fundamentalist church whose pastor taught the curse of Ham, a defense of slavery and the sin of interracial marriages from the grounds of the certainty of the text. To be in a church that is scandalized by religious pogroms and jihads, remembering that full well only to 300 years ago, we did our own cross burnings, and 700 years ago, we did the most severe inquisitions and crusades in history. We have a long history of needing correction. And I believe in continuing revelation as a spiritual being intuitively, but I am still Christian because I believe within the bounds of the Christian faith, the ultimate spirit of the one I follow, Jesus, is still what he said to his disciples on the night before he was crucified. I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit comes, he will lead and guide you into all truth. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Christian tradition is a tradition of continuing revelation. And that revelation did not summate with the ministry of Jesus in flesh. Because in flesh, Jesus said, I couldn't get it all said. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will. And there is no asterisk in the text that says, and the Spirit will not only get all truth revealed, it will get it revealed by the turn of the first century and there will be no more work. A not very careful look, Yvonne, at church history says that that Spirit has been continuing to tell us who Jesus is and who we are up to this present day. And that's why this church, with its work in inclusion... A hundred years from now, I want you to know you will be seen on the front edge 
We are called heretics now. But every movement of God that has ever done anything for God and man has initially been labeled heresy. It generally takes us about 500 years to repent to our slaves. It takes us about 500 years to repent to our Galileos. I don't know how long it will take us on this one. But we are in the Christian tradition. We are not heretics. We are believing with all of our heart and open that Jesus is still speaking to us today. And we have not heard that last word from the mouth of our Lord. Can you say amen? amen? And do I know I'm right on all this stuff? No. But I believe I have the mind of the Spirit. And I have been counted worthy. A redneck, heterosexual kid from the back gravel roads of northeast Arkansas by the mercy of God has had his heart changed Jason through the mind-blowing work of a spirit who has never done this is a Christianity I can be a part of and it is a Christianity you good people are teaching me more about every day. And to that end, we give deep thankfulness and gratitude to the one who is called love. And may we abide in a humility that is always willing to say, this is my best bet this is a tough and complex issue. We will compromise with the Spirit of Christ. We will yield in forbearance and with humility. We will walk away from every struggle and every midrash saying, we believe we have the mind of the Spirit. But sweet Spirit of God, we are willing to be corrected if we don't. We have no hills that we are willing to die on. No idols, no sacred cows that we will starve to death beside, nor starve others beside. Continue your work of revealing sweet Christ in us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said, would you stand with me and let's pray the prayer together that Melissa has brought to us and I think it's such an appropriate way to end let's say it with resolve now together say it good and loud sisters and brothers remember God is at the very least all things good true and beautiful and yet we sense God is also so much more our worship is ended but now our service begins go forth from this place you are beloved and the whole world awaits and needs you so live passionately Love faithfully. Celebrate every moment till we meet again. And God's people said, amen. Let's go have a picnic. God bless you.